Hi, that's Andrei Babitsky and Astap Karmodi. Astap. Hi, it's me. And the podcast, The Good, The Bad and The Rest, which is our podcast. And today we have a guest. We have a guest, Professor Ilya Solman, legal scholar from George Mason University and the author of, most recently, the book, Freedom, about the freedom of movement and of foot voting, which is strangely very relevant to whatever discussions are there about Ukrainian refugees and Russian immigration recently. And shall I start with a personal question? Because I feel I have a right to do this because you put this into your book. In your book, there is an example of a guy who was successful because of immigration. The guy is you. More successful than I would have been otherwise. (laughs) Yes. And the story is, to put it shortly, that you benefited immensely because your parents immigrated. And you feel that's some very natural, some natural thing to do for anybody who cannot change his or her political regime, mostly. Right? Yes. I'm just one of many millions of people who benefited from being able to emigrate from an oppressive and poor society to a freer and more prosperous one. In my case, my parents and I left the Soviet Union when I was almost six, and we moved to the United States. And obviously, to the extent that my life is way better and way freer than that of almost all of the people who are my age but stayed in, in the Soviet Union, it's not so much because of anything that I did, but because of the difference between the Soviet Union and the United States. And there are hundreds of millions of other people who have benefited in the same way. And if we had fewer migration restrictions than we do now, many more people could also benefit enormously, which is good both for them, but also for the world as a whole as well. And it somehow follows from what you're saying that for any parent who has kids, it's kind of a moral obligation try to move to freer or more affluent society or society with more opportunities? I wouldn't say it's a moral obligation. I think it depends on a lot of things, including how bad the society you're in actually is, and obviously also how good the alternatives are. But if the gap is truly enormous, as it certainly was in the case of the Soviet Union compared to the West, at the time my parents made their decision, I think it's at least something the parents should consider. My purpose is not to give advice to individual parents or individual people about whether they should move or not. I think you know they're in a better position to decide that for themselves and their families than I am. My purpose is to write about and discuss what the obligations of governments are and to say that if people do decide they want to move to freer societies, then the government should not stand in their way. I don't know if you followed the current situation in Europe about visas of uh, Russian citizens, because right now in Europe, uh, European countries, they are discussing ban on uh, tourist Schengen visas for Russians because of the war. And also some of the countries uh, have already stopped issuing uh, long-term visas, like working visas or business visas or in some cases, even student visas. And while the case with our working visas probably is more clear for you uh, than the tourist visas, what do you think of stopping Russians from going to Europe like tourists? 
right now because of the war? I think uh, the countries that are considering these steps and those that have already restricted work visas, they're doing the exactly the opposite of what they should be doing, both from the standpoint of morality and also from the standpoint of what can help defeat Putin's regime. I have written and condemned Putin's invasion of Ukraine and his government more generally. In fact, I've been writing about this since well before it was popular to do so. I condemned Putin's seizure and occupation of Crimea back in 2014 when you know that was not nearly as much of a cause as the current invasion of Ukraine. Nonetheless, it is unjust to restrict people's freedom of movement simply because uh, they were born in the wrong country or they belonged to the wrong racial or ethnic group. It's, there's nothing morally wrong about being Russian. It is morally wrong if you are you know, helping Putin wage the war in Ukraine uh, or committing atrocities and the like, but merely being Russian does not make you responsible for the war. And I would add also that many Russians today are actually trying to flee the oppression of Vladimir Putin, which of course has gotten worse over the last several months. We perhaps will talk about that later, but it has gotten worse than before. In Russia today, you can get as much as 15 years in prison merely for referring to the so-called special military operation as a war, right? Just that can send you to prison for a long time. It is particularly unjust to block people who are fleeing because uh, they want to escape oppression. I would add also that one of the easiest ways in which the, the West can combat Putin's regime is by imposing a brain drain. There are many talented and particularly young Russians who want to flee right now, who are in the tech industry or other important industries, and the West should be welcoming them both because it weakens Putin and because it will benefit our own economies, even if we all we care about is helping Ukraine win or combating Putin. We should be letting more Russians in rather than fewer, whether it's tourist visas or something else. Finally, our goal should be to separate the Russian population from the regime rather than to drive them closer together. The signal we should be sending is that while we are in a conflict with Putin and his government, we are not in a conflict with ordinary Russians. To the contrary, we want to win them over. And one way to do that is to expose more of them to the freer and happier society that exists in the West, as opposed to locking them up in Russia, where they're more likely to be exposed, where the situation is that uh, you know, the only source of information available to them is Putin's propaganda. So by taking these sorts of measures, the person who benefits will probably be Vladimir Putin. There are several arguments against this. Some of them I personally find uh, inconvincing, but some on, uh, like in my view, have some merit. And uh, if I may, I will go through them like one by one. First, I, I live in uh, the Czech Republic in Prague. And uh, Czech Republic, somewhat unfortunately in my view, was uh, one of the first countries that stopped Russians from entering altogether. Like at the very beginning of the war, they stopped issuing tourist visas, they stopped issuing working visas, like any visas at all, except for humanitarian visas and for uh, visas for family members of Czech citizens. And the, there was a somewhat walk official explanation for this but what some migration activists like human rights activists say who had a conversation with uh, the Ministry of Interior 
as I said, that the real reason uh, behind this, as at least as some anonymous officials from the uh, Ministry of Interior say, is that only a year ago, Czech Republic expelled like 90% of the personnel of the Russian embassy. And Russian embassy here was huge. It was one of the biggest in Europe, uh, notwithstanding the fact that uh, Czech Republic is a very small country. It had like one about 150 people working there, like Russians. And uh, everybody knew that most of them were spies, but nobody had the will to expel them. But uh, a year ago, there was a revelation that uh, a huge explosion on military warehouse in the Czech Republic was actually caused by uh, Russian, uh, Russian agents. And after that, 90% of the personnel of the Russian embassy was expelled. And what Minister of Interior says is that they do not have the resources to check all the Russians who come into the country, to check their background, and be sure that they are not spies or they are not other kind of like... Infiltrators. Yeah, infiltrators. Yeah, right. So uh, they just don't have the money. They don't have the personnel. And if we don't want spies and other enemies coming to the country from Russia during the war, we the only thing that we can do right now with the personnel and the budget they have is to stop them from coming altogether. I think I have both a moral and a practical answer to this kind of argument. The moral answer is that it is wrong to assume that everybody of a particular ethnic or racial or national group is presumed to be a spy or a saboteur and inflict harm on many thousands of innocent people just to keep out a few spies uh, or a few criminals. We readily recognize this in a domestic context. Like, for instance, if we say that a particular ethnic group has a higher crime rate than some other group, doesn't mean that we are justified in imposing racial or ethnic segregation. And the same thing is true here. The second, more practical answer is twofold. First, both in Europe and the US, we have actually had many thousands of Russian immigrants, hundreds of thousands really over the last you know, however many years, and the rate of espionage and sabotage from it is actually very low. In the US, it's actually lower than that from native-born Americans. So there's just no evidence that by you know having a permissive policy towards Russian immigrants, we're somehow in the West exposing ourselves to any significant degree of espionage or sabotage. In the case of espionage, the right way to deal with it is not to keep out everybody, but simply to limit access to classified material or secret military sites and the like, which has to be done whether we're going to have Russian visas or not, because I would finally answer that a capable intelligence service, which Russia at least to some extent has, albeit recent events have shown that it's less capable than we thought it was, but in, they can almost, if they really want to sneak in a spy or a saboteur to a relatively free society, they almost always can. It doesn't even have to be somebody who's an ethnic Russian or a Russian citizen. It could be somebody else. So unless we want to adopt a sort of more or less authoritarian society, there's no way to completely seal ourselves against small numbers of spies and saboteurs. The last point that I would make is that any 
risk from this is greatly outweighed by the strategic benefits that I mentioned earlier. We impose a brain drain, we damage Putin's propaganda position and so forth. These are much larger benefits than any plausible cost that can be associated on the other side. And I admit the cost is not zero. In any large group of people, you're going to find there's going to be some criminals, some you know, other problematic people, but the potential gains are very large and they're more than worth uh, these fairly small risks. That would be certainly uh, correct during the peacetime. But now we are at war, and even if we are not officially at war with Russia, we are supplying Ukraine arms, weapons, and probably intelligence. And uh, actually, these Russians are uh, blowing up, uh, making explosions on uh, in military warehouses uh, that are actually source of weapons for Ukraine. So uh, here the stakes are much higher than usually. So my answer to that is the benefits of attracting people are also much higher than usual. In addition, from the point of view of the Russian government, they've been in a conflict with the West for a long time, and there already are a substantial number of Russians living in the West. If that community was a significant source of potential sabotage for, or, or, or espionage, it would already be happening. So, And as I mentioned before, if Russia wants to sneak in some small groups of expert saboteurs or saboteurs or the like, they very likely can do it, even if migration from Russia is banned. So we're not actually successfully protecting ourselves from anything here. To the contrary, what we're doing is shooting ourselves in the foot when we do things like this. And can I ask a more philosophical question, which is, except your great book, which I read recently, I also read, reread Albert Hirschman's book, Exit Voice or Loyalty, which poses a, a basic trilemma for a citizen of a unjust society, which is voice your protest, keep loyalty or exit. And there is understanding shared not only in Europe, but in Russian emigre society too, that we, we, like people like me who are li uh, living in Tbilisi or Yerevan and are against Putin and the war and don't want to go to jail, we have actually two. We already ditched loyalty and now we have two choices, exit or protest. And the guys from outside and the devils in our souls keep whispering, you fled and you will never, you know, you'll never be able to, you know, for collective action, for collective protest, for changing your country to the best. And after you failed building anything meaningful in Russia, what are you worth beyond Russian borders? Because you actually failed in, you know, changing your own country, what you can do good for another country. That's our common reflection, I'm telling you honestly. Yeah. So if I understand you correctly, and if I don't, please correct me if, if I have it wrong, what you're really doing here is you're raising two questions. One is maybe people have an obligation to stay and, as the saying goes, fix their own country, right? Instead of fleeing yeah. Russia, try to fix the regime of Vladimir Putin or even overthrow his regime. And then the second question is, if you didn't succeed in improving things in Russia, You know, how are you going to be a useful member of society in another country? Yeah. So let me try to answer both of those questions. On the second, how useful or productive a person is depends in large part 
on the institutions they're surrounded by. Obviously, it depends to some extent on their talents or and on how hardworking they are. So, you know, I could never be a great basketball player in any country, whether in Russia or America. I just don't have that kind of talent. Nonetheless, living in the United States, I'm probably several times more productive than I would be in Russia or another poor and oppressive country. Economists have a concept called the idea of the place premium. That is the way in which the same person can be more productive when surrounded by better institutions and opportunities than when surrounded by worse ones. For example, if a person from Mexico or Guatemala enters the United States, almost immediately they can increase their productivity two or threefold, not because they become a, a better or a smarter person, but because there are just more opportunities in the US. So how useful a citizen you are, both from an economic point of view, but even from other points of view as well, uh, how you can contribute to society in other ways, depends in significant part on the institutions of the society. And there are many thousands of Russian immigrants in Europe, in the United States and elsewhere, who have made enormous contributions to technological development, entrepreneurship, literature, science, and so forth, that probably if they had stayed in Russia, we can't know for sure, of course, any given case, but on average, they either wouldn't have been able to do those things, or they would have done it to a much smaller extent because the institutions of Russia, the economic and political institutions there are much worse on the whole than those in the West. So therefore, a person who cannot achieve much in Russia, it doesn't necessarily follow that they won't do much better given better opportunities somewhere else. There is the question also of, you know, sh do you instead have an obligation to try and fix, you know, the country? And I think this to some extent depends on the person. I do think there is a narrow class of people, and I talk about them in my book, who if they're high-ranking government officials and they've actually contributed to the injustice and oppression in that society, then maybe they do have an obligation to stay if they can really make a difference. On the other, because they're morally responsible for the wrong that was done. On the other hand, the average person in Russia and in other oppressive societies, first, they have very little chance of having an effect by staying. Second, if they try to engage in open opposition, especially now, they risk prison sentences or in some cases even death. So I think it is morally wrong to say, well, you have an obligation to do something that has very little chance of making a difference, but does have a good chance of landing you in prison or getting you or your family killed or injured. The last point that I would make, and I make it in the book in more detail, is that having a diaspora in a freer society actually can help promote useful reforms back home. In Russian history, actually, more liberal exiles living in the West have had beneficial effects in promoting reform at home. It happened in the 19th century. It may be happening today with people like the two of you, where modern technology enables you to continue podcasts and speaking and the like abroad and potentially reach people in Russia if that's what you want to do. So on the whole, I think there's both good reasons to think that migrants from uh, dysfunctional or badly flawed societies can be very productive 
and useful citizens in a new country as they come to. It happens all the time in many millions of cases. And also, I think it is very questionable to say that people have a moral obligation to risk their lives in ways that are unlikely to make a difference and as a result of injustices, which are not those people's fault. The average Russian is not morally responsible for the evils of Putin's regime, just like the average Chinese person is not morally responsible for the genocide the China is engaging in and, and so on. May I continue with uh, the objections? Several days ago, Lithuanian Minister of the Foreign Affairs, uh, Gabrielius Landsbergis, said in an interview with uh, Deutsche Welle, the German broadcaster, that even though he didn't say that we should not let Russians uh, to Europe, but he said that we would like a Russian opposition to stay in Russia because it's better for us. It's not like they... He didn't uh, speak about their moral obligations. But he said that if we have any hope that uh, something will happen to the Putin's regime, there will be some like democratic changes in Russia, it will be because uh, there will be some share of uh, opposition in the Russian society, be it 5% or 10%. If all these people leave, uh, then Russia will stay uh, authoritarian, Putin will stay in power, and we will uh, have no hope that it will ever change. Do you buy the argument? He didn't say that we shouldn't let Russians in, but he said that we are interested in that they stay in Russia. I would just give the same response that I just gave. First, there's no evidence that by forcing them to stay in Russia, you actually increase the chances of overthrowing the regime. If anything, the opposite might be true for the reasons that I gave earlier. Second, it is in fact immoral to use force against innocent people and make them risk their lives just because you know you think you might get some strategic benefit out of it. Rejecting such policies is one thing that make that should make us different from regimes like Putin's, we, that, that we should not use coercion and force against innocent people when we think it might benefit us in some uh, strategic way. And if we say we are going to do that, then that actually weakens the moral integrity of our own cause uh, and makes us more like the thing that we say we oppose. Well, it's certainly true, but again, we are in war now. And in war, and even in both war, sides there should be restrictions like on immoral. what we do to innocent people. Well, in World War II, they bombed German cities and they bombed Hiroshima. So we can have a discussion about what was done in World War II, but I would argue that much of the strategic bombing campaign was morally unjust and should not have been done. And I'm far from the first person to say this. Many ethicists and others have pointed this out. But I would also say you can try to argue that certain injustices are justifiable if they're the only way to prevent some greater evil. In this case, we have many options from combating Putin. And, I, and for reasons I pointed out earlier, letting Russians move to the West actually on balance helps us in the conflict rather than weakens us. So here, there's not even a trade-off of the kind that you could argue existed during World War II, where at least for a time, you could argue, or at least some people did argue, that strategic bombing of German cities was the only way to effectively oppose Nazism. We have many options right now. The West overall has vastly more power than Russia does, and therefore we do not need to resort to policies that gratuitously harm innocent people. We have much better options available to us. And by the way, we're talking about Russian immigration, but much more numerous and important now is Ukrainian immigration, Ukrainian refugees. 
and there is no debate, luckily, whether to receive them, get them in or not. But there is some debate about what to do with Ukrainian refugees, because they are now numbering in high millions, and what approaches to take, because these approaches are built on a common assumption that they're refugees, so they're here temporarily to get back to Ukraine, and their only wish is to help Ukraine win the war and rebuild itself. And I understand that from your point of view, it's not what general refugee would think or how we should treat him. So I think different refugees are in different positions. At this point, we simply don't know how many Ukrainian refugees will ever be able to go back to Ukraine and how many will not. We do know some have already gone back. Of the 7 million or more that left Ukraine during the war, there's probably somewhere between 1 and 2 million which have returned, mostly, I think, to areas which were never occupied by Russia. And once the front line more or less stabilized, some of those people returned home. But I would say two things about this. One is when you look historically at big refugee crises, often a substantial proportion of the refugees cannot and do not return home even after the war is over. That happened after World War II, even though the Nazis were completely defeated. There were many millions of refugees who, for various reasons, could not return home. It's happened in more recent conflicts, including the Syria conflict and and others. And in the case of Ukraine, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen with the outcome of the war, but there's a decent chance that Russia might retain control at least of some territories that it occupied, and therefore people will not be able to go back to those places. Even if Ukraine recaptures every single square foot of land that they lost, and I hope that they do, but even if they do, there may be some places that will never be rebuilt, some jobs that could never be restored and so on. Will Mariupol ever really be rebuilt to what it was before? Maybe, but I have my doubts, even if Ukraine does manage to recapture it. So the US, Western Europe, and other countries, we should plan on the assumption that many Ukrainian refugees, not all, but many, will stay here permanently and that that will benefit them, but it will also benefit us because they can, they already are and can be to a greater extent, useful contributors to our economies and societies. They can also even benefit relatives and friends left back in Ukraine in some of the ways I mentioned earlier. One is by promoting liberalization, which I mentioned before. Ukrainian society is much freer than Russian society, but it still has problems of illiberalism, corruption, and so forth. The second way is that immigrants in wealthier society often send remittances, payments to relatives in their home countries. That can help Ukraine rebuild after the war. Yes, I'll just go on about Ukrainian refugees. Yes, because actually the way refugees are received, nudge them. You can either pay for their language courses or you pay for their Ukrainian flags or you pay for their tickets home or you can find them job or you can pay for their food till they come back or stuff like that. And uh, if we think in terms of nudging, I realize that much of the help they got in your eyes should be deemed misplaced. 
but what is the correct way to I'm not going to claim that there is one correct way for every conceivable person and circumstance but I would say that both in the United States and in Canada and in many European countries we right now have a labor shortage of various kinds for partly due to the pandemic partly due to the aging of the population and many other causes so the right way and to some extent we are already doing this but the right way is to just simply let them work that both enables them to support themselves and also facilitates linguistic learning and assimilation for those who want to stay for those who do not want to stay they can at least earn some money and support themselves and when they go back to ukraine they might have some resources that can help them rebuild so at this point i'm not saying all of these people will stay in the west some of them will some of them won't and i won't say that you know there's one decision that is the best for all of them in all circumstances what i would say what is best in the short run for them and also for us is two things one is let them work the european union has actually already done this the us as well for those ukrainians who have come here i think canada also the other is don't set a time limit on how long they're allowed to stay and here we haven't been as good the temporary protected status in the united states uh that has been given last for 18 months the president can renew it if he wants to but who knows who will be president in a year and a half and you know what they'll do in europe if i'm called correctly the policy is a stay of up to 3 years and i i assume the hope is the war will be over by then and i certainly hope it will but we don't know what's going to happen and as i mentioned before there is a good chance not a certainty but a good chance that many refugees will be unable or unwilling to return to places like Mariupol which have been destroyed and also it is there's a possibility that even if the the war goes well with Ukraine there will still be a sort of permanent or or long term frozen conflict where certain areas with near the border with Russia wherever that new border will be we don't know where it will be but certain areas will be perpetually vulnerable to russian attack and understandably people wouldn't want to live in those places you might say well they should be they should live there you know it's they should be brave or what not but if you would not be willing to subject yourself and your children to the threat of a russian attack at any moment then it's wrong for us to say that it's bad for me but it's perfectly fine for those ukrainians we can make them do it uh so in general two things one is let people work and the second is don't set a time limit i would add also that there are many civil society initiatives i've been involved in some here in the united states and there are in europe as well of helping people get information and assistance in some cases language lessons and the like but often you know the best way to do that all of those things is simply access to the workforce because that improves language skills that improves assimilation that gets people more comfortable living in the the new environment they find themselves in but obviously you know that adjustment does take time particularly for people who have been traumatized by war and uh and fear and in some cases have watched friends and relatives die or be killed or, or be injured or wounded these people who are traumatized like ukrainian refugees in general also they are the third objection that is raised against uh, russian immigration because there are like millions of uh, ukrainian refugees right now in europe i think uh, in uh, only in poland there are about 2 millions 
And for many of them, it's a real trauma to have Russian immigrants near them because, like, uh, for example, in Berlin, there are Russian demonstrations with Russian flags of people who are actually supporting Putin's aggression. And here I have a person that I know quite well who is from Ukraine and who tried to go to Czech lessons. And there were several Russians in her group who were quite willing to speak about the war and they had some opinions that it's like not so simple, that Ukrainians are also to blame and so on and so on. And she just couldn't stand it. She had to leave the courses after several lessons because her city, her native city is being bombed and she just couldn't share the room with these people. So another argument uh, against at least liberally uh, let Russians uh, into Europe is that it could be a big trauma for Ukrainian refugees. I have, a, again, two levels of answers to this. One is sort of a general matter of principle that we cannot and should not trust governments to suppress what they think are harmful or wrong opinions. You know, I live in the U.S. Uh, I'm an academic. All, very, all the time, you know, I hear opinions that make me angry and the like. For instance, in academia, there are people who have pro-communist opinions. You know, I had members of my family who were in the gulag and otherwise suffered under communism. There are people who are anti-Semites, people who are racist. And part of living in a free society is that you have to accept the fact that you cannot use force to suppress people's ex expression of harmful opinions. If that's true for native-born Americans or Europeans, it's also true for Russians, though we certainly can condemn the expression of those opinions and we should condemn it. The other point that I would make is that if you look at the Russian emigre community in the West, obviously there are people with, with different views. It's not a monolith, but on the whole, there are many more people hostile to Putin's regime. Those who are supportive of it, they would be less likely to want to leave in the first place. So I think that the opportunity to live in a freer and wealthier society is well worth putting up with you know, people who express some horrible views. And that too, I think, is part of the process of assimilation in a free society, that we learn to accept the idea that we can't uh, suppress views that we don't like, even views that very deeply offend us and that remind us of terrible memories. That's true for me. Obviously, I, I know it's different if you've experienced the trauma recently than if you experienced it years ago. Nonetheless, we have a long history in the West of different ethnic and racial and national groups coexisting, even though some of them express horrible views. And the way to achieve that coexistence is not to try to use censorship or expulsion to try to suppress it, especially since once you give the government the power to do that, it is very unlikely to stop just at you know, a few cases of people who have terrible views. The last point that I would make is it is once again wrong to blame an entire group and bar an entire group merely because some small number of them express horrible views. Even if you believe, as I do not, that there should be restrictions on hate speech or restrictions on speech that supports evil regimes, at least limit the people, the punishment to those people who actually express those views, like imp impose restrictions as some European countries do on anyone who expresses the hate speech. Don't assume that everybody of a particular racial or ethnic or national group necessarily shares those views. Just have punishments for those people who 
you know, say particular things that you know, we think should be suppressed. Although I underlined earlier that I think principles of freedom of speech forbid that, but even that policy is better than a policy of blanket exposure of all members of a racial or ethnic group, merely because some particular people who are of the same group express horrible views. It's not ethnic group. Actually, this person from Ukraine is ethnically Russian. On one side, it's Ukrainian citizens who are being bombed. And on the other side, it's Russian citizens, doesn't matter what ethnicity they have, who are actually at least financing this bombing by their taxes. And are hereby making these Ukrainian refugees living alongside this Russian, uh, Russian not immigrants, create some kind of uh, moral equivalence. Yeah. So my answer to that is twofold. First, to the extent that citizenship depends on where you are born and often on what ethnic or racial group you're a member of it, classification based on citizenship itself going to be very similar to a racial or ethnic classification unless you give people the opportunity to change their citizenship classification. So which in this case has not been done. The second point about taxes If people are paying taxes because they're being forced to, then I think that's very different from, you know, voluntarily supporting evil policies. I would add that while the evil is on nowhere near the same scale, there is no government in the world that doesn't do at least some significant evil, including Western governments. They're not nearly as bad as Putin's government, but if you look at the policies, the U.S. government, Germany, France, pretty much any country, there's some significant injustices that are being funded by our tax payments. For example, I think the U.S. government's war on drugs is great, is very unjust uh, and harms a lot of innocent people for no good reason, but my taxes are paying for it and out of other Americans. So I think ultimately the solution to these problems is freedom of speech and tolerance, not attempting to repress the speech and certainly not expelling people purely based on their citizenship. At the very least, target only those people who violate you know, hate speech laws or something of the sort. Not everybody who is a Russian citizen or, you know, or a citizen of some other oppressive regime. Okay, some countries are letting Russians in, but they are making them sign uh, proclamations that they're against Putin, against war, and so on. Uh, Morally permissible or pragmatic. It's less bad than a categorical ban, but once again, I have both moral and practical objections. The practical objection is very simple. If somebody signs this declaration just because they're forced to, what value does that declaration actually have? right? It's certainly not going to convince anybody to oppose Putin any more than they already do. It's not going to increase the chances of a Ukrainian victory in the war and so on. But the moral least... objection is similar to what I gave before, that just as it's wrong to suppress people's political speech merely because they have horrible views, it's also wrong to force people to express political opinions that they might not actually share. And that, again, is the kind of thing that authoritarian regimes do. One of the most common forms of oppression in the Soviet Union and in other communist and other authoritarian regimes is that they constantly force you to express support for the government, even if you don't really feel it. So Western governments should not be engaging in similar practices. The way to win over people to support Western liberal values is not by imitating the tactics of these authoritarian regimes. It's rather by showing how we are different and better. 
I have two fold objections to that objection. First is, of course, they can say that they're against Putin uh, while not being against Putin, but at least uh, such measure could cut off the most stubborn ones who do not want to say there are such people who refuse to sign it. And the second objection is 100% agree with you when you say about this uh, freedom of speech in uh, normal times, but today we are at war and it's not just like offensive views, it's uh, actually enemy propaganda. Yeah. So again, my answer is twofold. On the first point, (laughs) we might keep out some extreme Putin supporters. I think there is little benefit to that because it's not like we have a risk that extreme Putin supporters are going to take over governments in the Western world, especially since you you yourself say those who refuse are only a small proportion. Anyway, as for it being wartime, wartime is a time when it's especially important to guard against violations of civil liberties and oppressive measures in the West, not just in Russia, but also in the West. We sadly have a long history of abusive and unjust government policies during wartime. I can give examples from both American and European history if you want me to, but particularly in wartime, it is even more important rather than less important to have free discussion and debate over government policy. And if the government is able to define what counts as enemy propaganda, then that's a power not only that can be abused in theory, but that has been abused many times in the history of of the world, including of relatively free Western nations. So I would say that having freer discussion and debate than than the enemy does is a strength of ours, not a weakness. And we should not allow our governments to violate those principles. And during wartime, we should be especially careful about it, not less careful. Yeah, here I have to add that I live in Tbilisi and there are lots of bars in Tbilisi that (laughs) only let you in if you say something along the lines that you hate Putin. And and I don't go to such bars because I am against Putin and they never ask me to sign anything I cannot sign. But the idea that you have to sign a paper to go to a bar is appalling in itself, really. (laughs) So I think it's silly, but I think uh, there's a difference between a private organization and a government. I would guess, I, I don't know what kind of bars you like to go to, but I would bet that there are also bars in Belize where you can go without signing anything. So, yeah. uh, you know, here competition and choice is at work. On the other hand, if there's a policy that says you're not allowed to be in the territory of the country at all unless you sign a declaration against Putin or some other declaration, you know, I think that's that's a very different thing. So in one of the sections of my book that you mentioned, I explain why we shouldn't analogize the powers of national governments to those of homeowners or owners of private property. And this is one of those times. So if an owner of a particular private establishment says, I only let in people who oppose Putin, or even I only let in people who support the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or something like that, I think the private organization should be allowed to do that. That's different from the government doing it. And we are running out of time, I guess. So you've certainly studied the history of migration in Europe. and The present crisis is relatively small compared to to the previous ones. After the war, there were like 12 million displaced people in in Germany alone. And many Jews who couldn't go home because there was no home and there there were no neighbors. And do you, after reading and studying that, do you have some idea where, how it will end, you know, 
What's typical or what are range of, of fates for, for all these? It's, it's, it's a great question. I don't have a definitive answer because obviously we don't know how the war is going to turn out. We don't know which territories will be under the control of which side. We don't even know what kind of government will be in power in Russia five or 10 years from now or whatnot. Nonetheless, as I suggested before, I think a couple of things are true. One is there will probably be, be large numbers of the refugees who can never return home because you know there's no home to return to economy and society of that area has been destroyed or seriously damaged. So we should plan on the assumption that there will be a substantial number of people like that, as was true after World War II, which was the last time Europe had as big a refugee crisis as, as this one. Second thing that I think is worth uh, remembering from that experience is that given the chance, the refugees can in fact be valuable contributors to our new societies. The Jews who ended up in the United States, in the UK and Canada and elsewhere, and also other displaced people, who many of whom were not Jewish, most of them eventually did settle and assimilate and become valuable contributors to a new society. The same thing can happen now if we give people the chance to do it. I think it's a good closing line or stop. <laughs> What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So, Thank you so much for your great questions. So everybody hears it. So now <laughs> that was our small, very independent to the extent of uh, being free podcast, the good, the bad and the rest. And our respected guest, Professor Yasomin. Listen us more. Listen us on all the platforms listen our second episode whenever it appears and it appears soon and we will meet again <laughs>